Unity is a game engine for building 2D and 3D experiences, augmented reality, movies, and other applications. Unity is cross-platform so that applications can be written once and deployed to iOS, Android, web, and other services. Unity has been around for 13 years and has grown in popularity with the rise in gaming and game development. Brett Bibby is a VP of Engineering at Unity, and he joins the show to describe how Unity applications are built. Since Unity SDKs allow for Unity code to run across all the different platforms, from iOS to web to Android to Xbox, this requires writing and maintaining native code libraries for each of these devices. When ASM.js came out, Unity developers were able to deploy 3D games to the web. These were some of the first examples of ASM.js being used. If you remember a few years ago, there were some videos that were trending, or websites that were trending, of 3D games that had been rendered to the web, and that was because of the allowance of ASM.js. ASM.js is a small, performant subset of JavaScript that other languages could compile down to. So in this case, Unity programs in C-sharp were running in the browser after being compiled down into ASM.js. Since then, WebAssembly has improved the toolchain for non-JavaScript code to be compiled down to code that can run on the internet, on the web, I should say. WebAssembly allows for a high-performance compilation path for non-JavaScript programs. After exploring the basics of Unity in today's episode, Brett described how Unity works with WebAssembly and the potential for creative applications of Unity both on and off the web. I should admit, I am very new to discussing Unity and game development in general. These are topics that I have intended to cover for a while, and I'm just starting to get my feet wet, so forgive me if I'm not great at understanding some of the stuff that's going on in in the world of Unity and the world of game development, but I will absolutely do my best to cover this material further because I know there's a lot of people that want to hear more about how games are made and how 3D stuff is made, and there's a lot of performance questions around these topics. So I'm looking forward to diving further into these topics. And today's episode is a great example of how deeply technical and certainly different than talking about a microservices architecture or a distributed database or something, which is a lot what we do a lot of shows on, or cryptocurrencies. This is a, a little bit different territory, and it was fun to discuss it. So I'm looking forward to doing more, and I hope you enjoy this episode with Brett. Brett Bibby, you are a VP of Engineering at Unity. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's great to be here. Unity is a 3D platform. It supports many different application targets. Explain what Unity does. Right. So what Unity does in its core is enable rapid development using an extensible editing environment that allows you to build real-time graphics-intense applications like games for the platform of your choice. How does the usage of Unity vary across different development targets? Because people use it to make games, movies, apps. How does it vary for those different use cases? Right. Well, it varies a lot. (laughs) We have in any given 30-day window about 500,000 actively edited projects in Unity And there is more than 1 million games and apps that have been built and shipped. And those get installed more than a billion times every month across the spectrum of platforms. So to say that there are multiple uses is is a bit of an understatement. But I do think that what makes it, you know, the core thing that we're solving, the core hard problem that we're solving is building real-time interactive graphics software is hard. And if you can do that, then it kind of enables other things that maybe aren't quite so hard or adjacent use cases. So I think what we find is that a lot of people come and and realize a real-time game engine could be useful for their architectural walkthroughs or 
visualization or whatever it is they're trying to do. So we see a lot of variance there. Did Unity start exclusively as a game engine and then other people started picking it up for things like real estate walkthroughs or uh, augmented reality applications? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't even say started out. I would say that we're still, you know, very much focused and centered on the game industry. The game industry is, you know, very much alive and thriving and driving innovation. And when you look at what we're trying to do on the software front and the technology front and and to solve hard problems and put this technology in the hands of more creators, you know, you couldn't really ask for a better use case or market than than the game market. So, I would still say that, you know, we started out trying to make a game and ended up building a great game engine. And that was uh, more than 12 years ago. And, you know, today we're as committed as ever to the game business and the game industry. And of course, we welcome users from from all the other uh, use cases as well. In the process of developing a game, when do I start interfacing with Unity? Or what is my interface with Unity? If I'm building, for example, a game on iOS or on a browser, what's my experience of interfacing with Unity? Right. You know, I think it's more like when you start a project, well, actually, let's get philosophical for a moment, can we? You know, when you think about creativity in general, you know, this always comes as like an exciting insight, right? And it's it's out of this insight that we see something new. We see something that wasn't seen before. It could be, you know, combining things in different ways, or it could be revolutionary or evolutionary. But there's really something about this creative impulse in, in human beings in general. And if you think about it, some of the most creative, the, the creative artifacts that there are in existence in the world, and, and you think about where those lie, they lie in things like music and, and writing and, you know, whether it be sketching, drawing, art. And the reason, if you think about it, it's because you are not between, you know, the idea and the implementation. You're able to rapidly sort of get that out. You know, if you learn to type 100 words per minute, you, can, you, could, you could start typing a story and the story could flow and that flow is what really allows you to stay in that zone of insight and creativity. And it's the same for music. And I think that's, there's a reason why these are some of the most popular forms of creative expression that we have. So, you know, what we look at unity is kind of the same thing. What you want is a tool that enables that expression, you know, as quickly as possible. It gets out of your way and enables you to do things, you know, in a very fluid and dynamic way. And I wouldn't say we solved all those problems yet, but that's certainly the core of what we're trying to solve. So therefore, when you apply it to your question now about like, how do people approach Unity or how do they get involved in Unity? It's really kind of in this way. A lot of people use Unity because they want to prototype and they have ideas and they need to move fast. And so they come and they start prototyping Unity. But rather than, than have to abandon it, Unity can then bring you all the way through production all the way through, you know, building, shipping, and and even running and operating your game. And so I think it's that, you know, the power of Unity is not that we're good at marketing and selling it. I think it's what we're good at is making a tool that empowers people to create, you know, the experiences that they want to create. So let's say I've got a high-level idea for a game where I'm just cat running around an apartment. And it's that's basically the idea... And so I say I want to just have this cat be able to move around in three-dimensional space, uh, and I want my game to be able to target all these different platforms. I want to have it on iOS, I want to have it on Android, I want to have it on web. What do I start with? Do I start by modeling the cat in some kind of 3D rendering tool, or is there a an IDE for Unity developers where I can start developing the cat and developing some code around the movement and stuff? Walk me through the the usage there. Right. And these are two good examples and they're both true. You know, the the saying I like to say, I guess in this regard is, you know, follow your bliss. So if what came to you was like, oh, there's this cat and and I love cats, you know, and I, it's actually I see my cat and my cat loves to, you know, he's very playful and and they can move and they can jump, they can reach high places and and just it has so much personality in life, then maybe what I would do is start like, you know, thinking about, you know, the cat itself and the art and the style of that cat. And maybe it's the animation or maybe it's the, well, you know, that'd be interesting. Maybe I could lay out a 3D space 
and I could have the cat, you know, get into different places. So, you know, it's not really about the cat and the movement of the cat, but it's the game mechanic. Okay. Maybe there's mice that I'm trying to get, but then there's dogs that are trying to get me. And so, you know, I need to be on the floor to get the mice, but then I'm vulnerable from the dog. And therefore I want to like outrun the dog and then a big chasing could ensue. Oh, okay. So maybe I'd start white boxing um, right inside Unity. You know, we have a tool called Pro Builder. It's kind of like SketchUp. And right there inside the Unity editor, you could start boxing things out. You could, you know, make couches, tables, chairs, counters, beds, dressers, whatever. And then you could create, you know, simple little shapes, a sphere, or maybe a small capsule or something, drop it in, attach a, a movement controller that, you know, we have uh, samples, stuff like this. And within, you know, 20, 30 minutes, you could be running around sort of a, a 3D world and interacting with it and, and starting to develop your behavior, flesh out your ideas. And then, you know, people will start to ping pong, you know, they might start on the art for a while. And then a lot of the stuff that we are, you know, white boxing prototyping. And then let's say you you use the pro builder tools and you actually save saved that, uh, that locally. We can actually export those as FBX files, which is quite, it's a standard file format that you can open in 3D tools. And then you might go get a tool, whether it be Blender, Maya, Max, or, or whatever you want to use. You open that thing, that asset there, and then you further refine it. So you turn the couch into a maybe a nicer looking couch. And when you save that, it pops back up in Unity. So you have this very nice sort of round tripping flow. So when you want to ideate inside Unity, you can do that. And when you want you know, a more powerful or refined or special purpose tool, then Unity will generally work with that tool as well. So the idea here is, is follow your bliss, get your idea out there, iterate on it so that you can, you know, what you're looking for is that elusive fun factor. What about in my browser application or in my iOS application or in my, for example, Xcode, if I'm writing the iOS code to interface with my game, what are the bounds between and what's the interface between that iOS code and the Unity code? Right. That's a great question. Well, first, a little bit of context. So Unity runs on, you know, quite a few platforms. We're, we're, we're north of 30 platforms now. And three of the platforms are desktop ones, and that's uh, Mac and Windows and, and Linux support, uh, which is in beta now, but it's, it's uh, coming out soon. And so for every platform, there's a, there's a runtime engine. It's a very specially built, highly performant uh, real-time rendering engine. And that rendering engine is embedded inside the Unity editor on desktop platforms. So you can actually stay right within the Unity editor. You can build, you can press play, and instantly your game will, will be running and playing inside the editor in real time. And we have, you know, if you put your ultimate build target, like to say iOS, in the game window inside the editor, you can set it for, you know, iPad Pro uh, portrait or landscape. And so you can get really close to what it looks like and will play like on the device itself. And this is, again, part of that rapid iteration. When you're ready to build, or if you want to all the time, when you build, we, you can output that project to say an Xcode project. You can integrate additional code and resources into that project and then do the final build to device and then run it on the device as well. And you can even connect that device back to the editor and do real-time profiling and other things. But the the key is this this really seamless workflow and round tripping between the editor and, and the runtime experience. That those different platform specific runtime, so the the plot the runtime for the browser and the runtime for the iOS device, for example. Can you tell me about how one of those is designed and and is there a platform team or or a set of teams that is responsible for those 30 different surfaces where Unity code can run on? Yes. And in fact, that's what I think is a, another really hard, hard problem is making sure that we can get your content out on those platforms. At Unity, the, the core engine team, which I lead, is currently about 550 people. And of that, we have more than 120 just focused on platforms, whether it be iOS or PS4 the HoloLens, uh, VR devices, I mean, all 30 platforms. And so we have specialists on each platform that basically know the hardware, 
really well, the devices really well, and they're able to sort of bring the, the Unity runtime engine implementation to those platforms and make sure that they run in an optimal way. So the developers don't, don't have to, to worry about this. Basically, if you get your experience running inside the Unity editor and press play um, and it works the way you want, generally when you build and, and put it onto the target platform, that's exactly what you're going to get on the target platform as well. One development that has recently come up that's uh, had overlap with Unity is augmented reality. So Android and iOS both have augmented reality support now. How has that changed the direction of of Unity, or has it changed, or do you just think of this as just another vertical or another surface to interface with Unity models? Right. I think, I mean, AR is a bit of a special case. I think AR is really, really, you know, game-changing in a lot of ways. You know, I don't think there is no one perfect solution for everything, but I think AR is really interesting because it unlocks things that just weren't possible before. Uh, So, you know, while AR is, you know, it's not exactly a platform and we we have AR that you can enable and we have the AR functionality and we can get you out using, you know, AR kit on iOS or AR core on um, Android or onto HoloLens or even the Magic Leap One. Um, so again, our biggest concern is making sure that as, as a developer trying to build something that you're able to bring your experience to, to your customers and your end users. But I do think AR is pretty compelling. How does AR interface with Unity in a way that is different than previous applications like building a game on iOS? Right. Well, I think, you know, like games are already fairly advanced technology and the, you know, AR is even like farther out on the tip of the spear in that way. So one of the problems that you have with with any new emerging technology is lack of standardization. And I think that's good, you know, because we also want to innovate and we want to be able to do, you know, amazing things um, and and support whatever things the platform can do. And so I think the idea is that we've got to do, we've got to achieve two things on that, right? One is we got to make sure that generally speaking, you know, in AR, you want to track motion or you want to track the environment. Well, we try to make that possible across a variety of hardware, but we also want to allow the platform differentiation to shine through. If you want to target just a single platform and try and take advantage of everything they have to offer, uh, we want to enable that as well. So, you know, we consider it like our job just to sort of give everybody the platform they need to 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 innovate and actually change the world with the apps, applications they build. Let's go through another end-to-end example. So if I want to, again, make this 3D cap model and I want to have the 3D cat model just be running around aimlessly in space, but I want to be able to like hold up my phone and see my living room and just see this three-dimensional cat running around and the objects are occluded appropriately. So it's you know integrating in an AR kind of way. If, if the cat goes behind a table, I actually see it go behind a table perhaps. Give me the end-to-end explanation for how I would make this cat model in Unity, and then how I would eventually deploy it to an iOS application. Right. Well, first, let's go a little bit deeper and just uh, start, make sure everybody's on board with, let's just answer the question, what is augmented reality? I mean, simply put, it's just, it's AR, augmented reality, is the ability to overlay or integrate kind of additional visual media into the view, which then augments the real world. And, and so how, how is that done? Well, the core components of of AR are really about motion and environment tracking. So in AR, what we need to do is we need some way to find surfaces in the world, like planes, that can be used to build a representation of that space. So we got kind of two things that, you know, terms that we can throw around to do this. The first one is VIO, which is visual inertial odometry or odometry. And basically what this is doing is um, combined with plane detection, it's figuring out like where the features are of the world. Another popular term for this is SLAM, which is simultaneous localization and mapping. And so the idea here is you use the, the VIO 
and the plane detection. And you identify these feature points. And this is used to then construct primitive shapes of the world. So you might have a couch and, you know, you can find like the cushions, you can find the arms, you can find the front, the top, the sides, the back, and so on. And so once you have that, we can construct an invisible world or we can construct a world of these shapes. And what we do is when we render, we don't render the shape, but we use that, that invisible world to basically, you know, do we do the positioning, the rotation, the scale, and then we clip the objects appropriately so that when they appear on screen, they actually look like they're, say, hiding behind a couch and peering out from the back or, or sitting on a floor or sitting on a table. So this, this idea of SLAM, um, you know, based on, on VIO with plane detection gives some sort of sense to the world. And then, you know, what we're going to do is just integrate a subset of objects that don't fill the whole screen and then, and then integrate them in space. And to do that, we would use at least a camera, but, you know, that's quite intense visual processing that needs to be done. So the better AR devices also have depth sensors and, and things like a GPU, a very good, uh, powerful GPU that's able to sort of crunch the data um, really quickly. So that's your underlying technology that you would need to work with if you want to just go build an AR app natively, even without Unity. These, these are sort of the pieces involved. So now coming to your example of, of the, the cat experience. So you would, in this case, then you would model, you would build the cat and the animation, and then you would create the simple state machines. And you can do that right inside Unity with our Mechanum animation system or, or any other way you want, timeline or, or some of the other technologies. And you'd basically say, oh, well, you know, if the cat, if you give the position of a cat however far forward, you want it to run, you want it to go left, right. If the point is up high, you want it to jump and so on. So now you have the cat, you have the behavior. And now when you integrate it with these other technologies, what's going to happen is you're going to basically generate the environment, the surfaces in the environment at runtime. And then the behavior of your cat interacting with those surfaces will give you the ultimate, the final experience you're looking for. What's deployed to my iOS device in order to run a Unity model? Is there a is there a software package or some kind of plugin or an agent that is running and and dealing with these three D models? Yeah, well, so if you wanted to do it yourself, what you would do is like you might go like uh, I mentioned it before, like AR Kit. So if you wanted to put this on iOS. You would go to Apple, you would sign up to be a developer, you would download, you know, the, all their tools, you would then also get the AR kit, and then you would set about like using this kit to, you know, examine the world and create the, the 3D. But of course, you would still be have to like turn all that information into a world and, and put all the behavior and all the other stuff on top. So what Unity does is we basically... In iOS, we work with ARKit. On um, Android devices, we work with um, ARCore at Google. If it's Magic Leap, then the Magic Leap One SDKs, Microsoft HoloLens, so on. And we also have um, Vuforia for places where we don't, you either want to use Vuforia across the board or you want to get to a platform that, that isn't a normal AR platform. So what Unity does is then builds APIs, common APIs across all of those devices so you would only need to target those. You know, you wouldn't actually need to rewrite the code for AR Core and AR Kit because we've already done that for you. And then when you hit build, that's what we're doing. We're generating the code using their native SDKs. We put it all together. And then the final compile is done actually by the platform tool chain. So it's basically as if you custom wrote it for each platform, but we're generating all the pieces around that plus the SDKs and the Unity engine that all get compiled together to get you that end experience. Let me see if I understand it correctly. The developer develops for Unity, and on the different surfaces, that Unity code compiles down to the native code because there is a common interface on each of these platforms. So So the interface is Unity, you write your code for Unity, and on Android, there is some Unity Android SDK, and the Unity code compiles down to Android code using that Unity SDK, and the same is true for iOS or web or all these other services. That's correct. Okay. So tell me more about that compilation process and the how it varies across different platforms, because 
you know, in the browser, for example, maybe you have different resource constraints in, you know, than in iOS, and you have all these different device types that may have different resource constraints. So, you know, perhaps memory management might vary across different platforms, which might give you performance penalties. What are some of the trade-offs that you have to make across those different platforms? Right. That's a great question. And, you know, I think generally, I think you called them out, right? The, the trade-offs are going to be, you know, what kind of CPU, GPU combo do they have? Um, and I think, especially when it comes to mobile, there's one big line, and that is whether it's a GLES 2 device or it's a more modern Vulkan um, device. On the iOS platform, you don't really have to worry about that because iOS has had metal for some time and they have GPUs. So you have some compute functionality. But when it comes to like the mass market ecosystem, you know, we see like from Unity games, you know, like 2 billion plays a month is more than 50,000 different models of hardware that are running, you know, Unity content every month. So, you know, the way to think about it really it's, it's not so much on, on RAM, it's, it's a factor, but I would actually say it's really down to the GPU. If you have an older GPU running GLES 2, the device is going to be a bit more underpowered. Um, that also means it's, it's IO, its ability to load from um, you know, the file system inside the device. All of that is going to be affected. Its ability to you know, thermal events when phones get hot they will actually throttle code and it will cause, you know, your games and apps to stutter and things like that. So these are really critical is that, you know, you think through the complexity of what you want to build and what is it about your experience that is most important? You know, is it, is it graphically rich turn-based strategy game or a puzzle game? Then maybe it's okay that, you know, it's running at 20 frames per second. But if it's a, an AR or VR, ideally you want that at 120 frames per second or, or at least 60 frames per second. So you have to think about like what you want the end user experience to be. And then based on that, what you want your reach to be. And then you just got to decide, are you going to target these, the older devices running like GLES 2? Are you going to require compute functionality, which means you're going to need a more modern Android or iOS device? or, you know, a desktop with a, with a good GPU in it. And this really dictates then sort of what the range that you're going to be looking for in your content. And then it's really recommended that you just go and build a smoke prototype. You know, you could just say like, oh, in your cat simulation example, you want a really nice looking cat. So maybe you say, oh, I want 10,000 polygons for my cat. Well, you know, you could go and just create a cube with 10,000 polygons, just tessellate it till it gets that much. You could go and look at furniture and other things, and you could just put in a bunch of tessellated cubes that represent sort of the complexity of the environment that you want. You could put different textures on them, and then you could run it on device, and you could look, and you could see how many draw calls you're having, um, how many state changes of materials and other things, what your frame rate is, where it's, it's you know, stalling and, and where the hiccups are. And you can do that in a matter of hours on day one, and so if you can zero in on that, then you kind of have a good target that you can then decide, ah, I'm going to build for these sets of devices in this sort of range at this level of complexity. I'd like to move towards talking about the web more specifically and eventually get to WebAssembly. So games on the web have been around for a really long time. Specifically in the browser, what are the concerns that a developer needs to have when developing a 3D game in the browser? Right. It's a great question. You know, in some ways, I got to say, it's, I, I, I wish I, I had great news for everyone, but it's just, you know, web standards are great, but the web moves really slow and adoption is not like really high. So web browsers, although they follow um, standards, they basically have different capabilities across the spectrum of devices and, and OSs. And real-time technologies like WebGL are not everywhere. And so, you know, building an experience that reaches your audience can be challenging. And you really got to be clear on, are you going for desktop? If it's just desktop, then, you know, WebGL is, is, is quite solid. Uh, when you get into mobile devices, uh, phones and tablets, though, the experience can be really uneven. So you have to really think carefully about how you're going to do that. Also, I think it's worth noting that there's an expectation on the web that sites load instantly. 
and structuring your game and content so that it meets this expectation can be really hard. I mean, you know, we have little images and, and little bits of text and and we can scroll through and it may look rich and, and whatever, you know, browsing our friends' photos and whatever, but these are likely JPEGs or PNGs, pretty low quality and a total web page, maybe a megabyte or two megabytes. But if you start, you know, trying to make a graphically rich experience on a high definition display, I mean, it's uh, it's not uncommon to have 100, 200, 500 megabytes of, of content in your experience. So, you know, getting that game to load quick um, so that players think that it's it's not crashed or something, it, it can be a bit challenging, you know, just to sort of progressively get people into the game and give it step by step and create all the you know, the loading, you know, sort of indicators and other things you need because you have to tolerate really poor, poorly performing devices to high-end devices as well. There is something called WebGL that I believe it's web graphics library that Unity will target if if Unity is having its models translated into a browser-based interface. What is WebGL and how does it work? Right. So WebGL, it's simply the OpenGL-inspired API brought to the web. So instead of OpenGL, you can call it WebGL. And WebGL is great, and it's super easy. You know, you can just, in a few lines of JavaScript, you can create a triangle or, or a more sophisticated object. You know, web is pretty good at loading images and, you know, sounds and, and, and media and stuff. So on the surface, WebGL is, is really fantastic. The problem is that, you know, um, what, you know, even though that there are standards for it, the, the, the devices and the OSs cause the browser makers to not be able to support WebGL in the same way on every platform. So even though it's a standard um, and it is a way to display 3D graphics, and it is on quite a lot of devices, there's still a lot of variance to how the content might look when it's actually rendered. And how does Unity interact with WebGL? Right. So what we do is we basically target WebGL by building the Unity engine out through, you know, historically using the ASM.js, which basically gives you the Unity engine and then translating all of our rendering backend instead of using, you know, Metal or DX12 or Vulkan, we basically target WebGL and then allow that to run there. And it, it runs quite well. I mean, pretty much anything that you can, like if you're in a browser that's, that's fully supported and has a good WebGL implementation, pretty much anything you can build for, you know, even a PlayStation 4, you could get running in WebGL. But it, to us, it's just another build target. ASM.js, if I recall correctly, this was one of the first tools in the evolution of WebAssembly. And what it is is basically a, a set of small JavaScript operations that are highly optimized and you can compile JavaScript code into, or maybe, oh, I guess you can compile in any type of code or, or, or many different, any code for which an interpreter to ASM.js has been written. And, you know, for example, you might have C-sharp code and it compiles down into ASM.js and then it's just a set of JavaScript operations, really small, highly optimized JavaScript operations that can run more efficiently in the browser. Is that right? Is that what ASM.js is? Yes. And I guess to be clear, let's let's just drag in the baby with the bathwater here <laughs> sure. uh, and contrast that to WebAssembly. So just to be clear, WebAssembly is a binary format for code on web pages compared to JavaScript, which is a text-based language. So just like what you were saying, the ASM.js is essentially very portable because it's actually JavaScript. You load it and it gets compiled on device. So it can go anywhere that there's a valid JavaScript engine. And WebAssembly is essentially the binary version of that. And the thing that's subtle here is that if you had, you know, 10 megabytes of code, you would actually have to download 10 megabytes worth of text files, compile that, you know, using the, the compiler on the user's device. And that generates another some number of megabytes of actual binary code that it executes. So you need kind of twice as much memory when you're going to work with JavaScript. And so ASM.js was great, allowed us to 
target JavaScript in a, in a very efficient way, but ASMJS itself needs to be compiled by the, the JavaScript compiler. So WebAssembly is kind of like a pre-compiled ver- binary version that then the browsers can load and run without needing to download the text files and compile them on the local device. Before we get to WebAssembly, if we're just talking about the performance advantages you got out of asm.js, asm.js, so what were you doing before? Because asm.js is, in in terms of browsers, it's a relatively new technology, even though now it's already getting superseded or, uh, or supplanted by WebAssembly. So what were you doing with uh, with Unity? Like, what was the Unity compilation path for the browser prior to ASM.js, and how much value did you get out of ASM.js? Right. Well, ASM.js, like, we wouldn't have been able to even get onto the web without ASM.js. So this goes back to, I guess, like, how Unity internally works itself. Um, Unity is structured around the .NET standard we use a combination. Uh, we use Mono in some platforms and we use the actual Microsoft supplied .NET toolchain in other platforms. And what's interesting about .NET and the, and the way it works, obviously, is it allows a variety of different languages to interoperate and work together. And the way they do that is, of course, by compiling them to an intermediate format, MSIL, which is the Microsoft Intermediate Language. So the, the MSIL is, is, is essentially, you know, kind of a generic assembly language. It's almost like a generic, you know, virtual machine platform that you target. And then what they do is then they, they take that and they compile that down into native code, which is why it's a bit different than, than Java is, right? Where Java might um, leave the, the code in the intermediate format and, you know, it would uh, compile it dynamically, you know, for the runtime. .NET, I mean, this is the standard mode of operation. So what we do at Unity is we use this MSIL as the the midpoint, and then we do code generation to convert the MSIL into JavaScript. And then JavaScript can be compiled or to target, I guess in this case, um, ASMJS with our own .NET runtime, uh, which we also have. Uh, So these two things converted and compiled to JavaScript along with ASMJS, allowed us to bring the entire Unity engine to uh, the web using WebGL. Okay, so this is why when ASMJS came out, some of the first videos that people were really excited about were, whoa, I'm playing Doom in the... I don't know if it's Doom. (laughs) What what were the early... It was like some games, right? Like 3D games, like first-person shooters in the browser, and people were kind of blown away because that was a new thing. Yeah. Exactly. Because, you know, you could, you know, it may take a while to load, but, you know, out of the box, you could take a large game, a game written for a PS4 or, or even an, an iOS, and you could actually build it and get a version out on the web. And this was really exciting because, especially for games that you have to buy, and, and especially back in the day with premium content, you know, you didn't know if you wanted the game or not. So you could actually take your game Put, put it out on, say, the Xbox One or the PS4, you could make a small demo version of your game with maybe one level or something, and you could build that and output that onto the web. And people could actually go and experience your game, experience your content directly in the web. And that that was really exciting. I mean, it's still exciting. You know, we kind of got used to it now. But, you know, to imagine, you know, that we're used to from the old days, you know, HTML1 and, and, and simple text to, you know, WordPress and through Facebook and you know, sort of interactive web apps, but then to really get to like the sky's the limit was and still is, I guess, rather exciting. Just to go a little bit deeper on the initial compilation path for the for C sharp code to ASM JS code, because I believe that's that was the original path. So you have so so C sharp code, so a Unity application is in C sharp code. And the, you know, on, on, a tar- on a target like iOS, I believe that the C-sharp code is, is getting translated via these APIs, like, like some iOS native API. And on the web, it had to get translated uh, through the Unity or, I guess, into, into ASM.js. Gosh, I, I'm sorry. I guess I'm still a little bit unclear on the compilation path. Right. First off, it's not just C-sharp. Because we actually have the full, we have a bunch of native code in the underlying engine. Matter of fact, our runtime is almost written exclusively in C and C++. 
So what we do is we actually created a, a tool chain that's called IL to CPP. And what we do is we take all of the native code as well, and we basically port that over. And then we also take all of the code in your project, the C Sharp code that's in MSIL. We compile MSIL into using IL to CPP also into native code. And we're basically then taking full native code pipe, which we would normally pipe into Xcode or you know the Xbox One compiler or whatever your tool chain is. And we put that into the ASMJS pipeline, and that gets us the JavaScript that we need out the back. Got it. Okay, so moving into WebAssembly, the as you said, the, the advantage of WebAssembly is that rather than having to have the, the uh, JavaScript code running through V8, for example, the JavaScript execution engine, and having Chrome manage all your hot code paths and and whatnot, you compile it directly to WebAssembly, although WebAssembly has to still get compiled into machine code, just like if you compiled, the JavaScript would have to go into a a binary, or I guess a bytecode format, then that bytecode format would have to go into machine code. So isn't there still kind of a, a burden in that compilation process from WebAssembly to machine code? Yes, which is, this touches on what we were talking about earlier, where generally when you run JavaScript on a device, you're reading in a text file, you're building the binary, then executing that binary. And web uh, assembly is just trying to pre-compile that binary for you so that it can run everywhere out of the box. So that means it's smaller and faster to download, and then it's instantly able to execute. We're also missing one piece here that we haven't brought into the story yet, and that is you were asking about the pipeline, and that's mscripten. So to make this picture really complete, it's core engine code, C, C++, that just comes straight across. Then you have all your project code, which is um, all the stuff that you've written in C Sharp. That gets compiled to MSIL, the Microsoft Intermediate Language, which is that assembly language intermediate format. And then we use IL to CPP to, to take that and generate out C++ code. So now we have all C, C++ code. We put that into mscripten. mscripten is the one that actually converts and compiles the C, C++ into JavaScript. And that's what Java, that JavaScript plus the ASMJS is what gives you the ability to run in the browsers. And then WebAssembly is just then pre-compiling that kind of like as a library, if you will. Ah, so even in the WebAssembly tool chain, you still have ASM.js. It's just the only difference is WASM does the pre-compilation. Yes, you still need to do, you know, WebAssembly. You still have to build something for the WebAssembly itself. Okay. So I think we, we've laid out a pretty good explanation of the compilation path for WebAssembly. And we've done that also in, in previous episodes. Let's talk a little bit about the opportunities because I know we're running out of time. Why is this important? Why is WebAssembly important and what does it unlock? What, what does that speed increase, that memory management increase that you get from WebAssembly, what does it unlock for you? Right. Well, I mean, I think what it unlocks for not just us but, and obviously all of our customers is a much more compelling experience on the web because if a browser is fully WebAssembly compliant, that means that you know you're not subject to how good of a compiler they have. You know, it means that the code that you're compiling the code with the optimizations that you want to put in it, fully done, fully ready. So it's faster and easier to download, loads quickly, more quickly on the device and is able to execute without generating, you know, that intermediate representation of a text file, which means less garbage collection, less memory fragmentation, and so on. So I think that, you know, that's good. That smaller code that runs faster is really good. We'd also like to see the multi-threading with the web workers uh, become more, more standard. If we can get that and WebAssembly, I think the web has, you know, that, I think that will give... 3D graphics and even WebGL a little bit more life on on the internet as well. What about the tooling, the IDEs, the Unity uh, developer experience? That stuff could move to the web as well, right? It, it could. I mean, like everyone, I mean, it's like 
if I actually asked you what you really want, you know, would you want a, a native app that was built natively for the platform that you're running on that worked in all the exact ways you want with all the, you know, fast frame rates and shortcut keys and configurations, support for various input devices, multiple monitors, multiple windows, touch displays. I mean, like if you actually think about you know, what you're going to spend your life doing, you want an expert system and you don't want an expert system to run on the web. I think it would drive you insane. I mean, it's one thing if you're just, you know, like if it's, I don't know why it popped in my head, rental cars. So it's like, you know, you go to the rental car counter and, you know, they want to look up your reservation and they, they've got to capture all the details and get it printed out, whatever. I mean, like, you know, if you think about what that person's job is, that person's job is really providing a service to a customer. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of aspects to that. You know, they're moving around, they're talking to people, you know, the computer is just part of what they're trying to do. But if you imagine that your job was a graphic artist at an ad agency building, you know, magazine ads or, or retouching photos for eight solid hours a day, 40 hours a week, uh, you would probably want to kill yourself after a week of of trying to use a f- a web version of Photoshop, right? So I think it's you know the right tool for the right job. So just to circle back to what you said earlier about the creativity aspect, I think what makes writing music or creating three D art with your computer what makes it a really seamless process is that you get used to that interface and you can directly translate your thoughts uh, through that interface very seamlessly, just like in the past, or well, still in the present, somebody working with a piano or a paintbrush can have that seamless interaction. Although we haven't really seen a world where that works on a collaborative scale, right? You can imagine a world where you have a collaborative Photoshop or a collaborative music interface. It's, it's hard to imagine that working without having some sort of networked interface which which is obviously a, you know a challenge to build but does seem like a big opportunity that has not really been capitalized or experimented within would would you agree with that I would absolutely agree with that and and I'm not you got to forgive me for the shameless plug on this but we just acquired a company called Multiplay um in in the UK that is fantastic about this and and we uh we believe that this, this notion of collaboration and client-server computing and multiplayer games and all this is, is very valid. I think this is what we need. I just don't think that, uh, you know, I think the right tool for the right job, I think some parts of what people build and create belong in the web. I mean, if I wanted to collaborate with you on writing a script for a game or a film or something like that, I mean, we'd be idiots not to use probably Google Docs, right? I mean, it's like, it's a great way. It's got all the tools that we need for commenting. It's archived, it's backed up um, and whatever. And, and, you know, but even, even then, if you were going to get on an airplane, you know, you'd be forgiven if you, you know, downloaded it so that you could keep editing it while you're on the plane, because you might not have great internet, but, you know, I think you would do that. But if it was like a creative endeavor and, you know, like music and other things, I mean, performance is really what you want. And I can imagine going out forward, people taking like game technology and saying, well, gosh, if you can run a massively multiplayer online game with, you know, 100,000 players spread out around the globe and, you know, in real time with massive amounts of content running around and doing interesting things, then probably we could use that same technology to build, you know, a pretty cool version of multi-user Photoshop or, or some other collaborative app. And I think, you know, those things are possible today. I'm sure there's other technologies out there, but certainly in Unity, this is something that we care a lot about is high performance server side ability to write code, but have it run efficiently so that you don't get hit with compute and other types of charges. And then giving you the ability to create in, in Unity, you could create even an application, we could create a, a drawing application and we can put that out on 30 platforms, all speaking to a common back end. And I just, I think there's use cases out there that we haven't even scratched the surface on yet that are going to be really compelling. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think it's a frontier 
And it's hard to anticipate what shape it will take, what kind of bandwidth we'll need for it. But it's certainly something that we'll, we'll see in the future, better collaboration. I don't think that this siloed, I'm on my laptop, and then I, I need my laptop's performance. It's, and you, you, know, you obviously agree. Okay, so we don't, we don't need to drum this in. But anyway, interesting thoughts for the future. There's an interesting thing there, though, and that is, you know, like, because we, we had a front row seat to the explosion in, in gaming. And why was that, right? And, you know, I think tools like Unity really enabled people with a, a vision and an idea to, to actually build it and get it out there. And what we've seen is an incredible, you know, width, breadth, and depth of diversity of, of entertainment. You know, sure, a lot of people are just sitting around, you know, popping bubbles or, 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 or playing crosswords on, on their phones as games. But if you look at the crazy amount of artistic drive, um, the games that have told like amazing stories and, and just exploded, I mean, a million games. And then you got to ask yourself, what's going to happen going forward? Because I, I believe there's a million apps missing from this world. You know, the Photoshop was, Photoshop is what, 28 years old today. Not today, but you know, nowadays is 28 years old. And it was built in a time when people had to put food on the table. So the way you do that in a small market is you've got to have a Swiss army knife. So if you wanted to make icons, you can use Photoshop. If you wanted to retouch wedding photos, you could use Photoshop. If you wanted to, you know, make game textures, you could use Photoshop. But, you know, why not make a custom app for wedding photographers? Maybe it exists, but imagine if I could use machine learning to learn what a bride is, what a groom is, you know, what a church looks like. I've got metadata that I can harvest to figure out where the the groom's house was and the time of day and the bride's house and time of day and all these things. I could enable everyone that went to the wedding as well as the, you know, multiple photographers I had on site to all upload all the media to a site. And we could use machine learning to grind through all of that pre-tag and pre-name everything. And then I could go in and say, oh, that's the bride, that's Susan, oh, that's the groom, that's, you know, Bob. And then it starts filling in all the pieces. And then it generates a, a photo album. It generates a set of um, wedding videos. It gives you options so that you can say, oh, we suggest this, that, the other. And you could like see, oh, I like, you know, sequence A here, B here, and so on. It does automatic red eye removal, does, you know, all the cleanup does all the tone balancing. I mean, like you could build an expert system today, even with a game engine like Unity, that would far surpass your experience with something like Photoshop. Doesn't mean that you would say, I'm not going to use Photoshop anymore. But if you consider, I don't know how many wedding photographers there are in the world, but I'm guessing there are tens of thousands of them. And I'm guessing that a lot of them are constrained by time. You know, you'd probably go and and do a, a wedding shoot on a Saturday and you've probably got, you know, many, many gigabytes worth of media that you got to sift through. And, you know, you sure you can set up automated workflows and, and try to cobble together tools. But my point is there's probably room for an expert system that you could probably charge, you know, $500 a month subscription on and people would be lined up outside your door to give you that money because, you know, they're time constrained. Instead of one wedding a week, they can maybe they could do two. You know, you're talking about actually putting food on the table for people. And how many apps are there in the world that are just missing that if we were able to rapidly develop them, get them out there, if they were multi-threaded, multi-core, able to use compute, machine learning, client server, ran on multiple devices. I mean, that's transformative. That's world changing. And that's the future that I think is right in front of us right now. An exciting time. Your mention of Unity there is more in the context of the cross-platform buildability rather than anything relating to 3D, right? Exactly. I mean, you've got... Well, see, there's a, there's a thing that I, we haven't touched on yet, right? And it's like Moore's Law, it's done, right? You know, when I, I'm old enough to say that I, I came from the, you know, one megahertz computers and then it was two and four and eight and 16 and on and on. And then, you know, we had the exciting times when Intel started really going and we had the 66 megahertz and 256 megahertz. We got to gigahertz and two gigahertz and three gigahertz and then nothing. And, you know, we're really stuck now on the size that we can make silicon and the speeds that we can bring them at. So what's changed? Well, what's changed is we've got to go wide. 
right now you've got to be able, you know, you've got eight, 16 core, 28 core, you know, processors out there now, and you've got to be able to take advantage of those in a very easy way. And, and I think what's cool about tools like Unity is that out of the box, we can multi-thread all of that. And we can even generate compute and run code on GPU. We interface to things like machine learning. All of these like high-tech, tip-of-the-spear innovations that the game industry is using, I think are going to be super useful in the application space as well. I fully can imagine you know, tens of thousands of, of developers, whether they be enterprise or, or just you know, indie developers at home, but, you know, you could build a really amazing app that just, yeah, it doesn't do 3D graphics. Uh, maybe it's got some 2D or whatever, but, you know, you don't need those things. But what you actually need is how are you going to write multi-threaded, multi-core, compute-enabled, network-enabled, scalable applications? I mean, that that's not super easy to do, but that's what we do in games every day. Not to open a can of worms, but have you looked at Flutter at all, the Google thing? Yeah, I mean, I've I've seen it. I haven't looked deeply into it. Any insights or things you want to share? We did a couple shows about it. Uh, it's certainly very, very early. But as I understand, it's a compilation path for applications that hits, I guess, the same surface or the same low-levelness as OpenGL. I don't know much about OpenGL, but it's, I guess it's, it gets compiled directly to ARM code or something like that. It, I, I don't know a whole lot about it, but talk to the folks who are working on it. It sounds like a low-level cross-platform target. And anyway, I, I heard, talking to those people, I heard a similar vision for, you shouldn't have to worry about what surface you're deploying to. And I think as this gets taken care of more and more by the compilation paths and the tooling, it will become obvious to people that, okay, so so we don't have to worry about whether we're deploying to iOS or macOS or the browser or whatever. This is really just a, a, a fake concern. I mean, it's a concern right now, but it's not something we should have to be worrying about. And then more people will be thinking, okay, so now that I'm not worried about that, I can think more about machine learning or like how to do collaboration over a network, like effective collaboration in something high dimensional like um, Photoshop. But anyway, it's a different set of subjects, a lot of subjects. Yeah. And I do think that, you know, we're going to see more and more of this because we have to, we're going to have to go wide. Um, like I said, but I, I think that a lot of people believe, you know, it's kind of like the web and mobile and, and they think like, it, you know, web, mobile, and cloud, these three words, you know, you could pepper into a presentation and, and, you know, who knows, maybe even raise a lot of money. But I guess I live in a world where I work, <laughs> work my, my butt off every day and I don't want to use a mobile phone for six hours in a day. And I don't want to use even a web browser for that long. You know, I want an expert tool that's going, that I can leverage that works for me. And time is money and I'm willing to pay for that. So, you know, things like, like Flutter, I think these are, these are great, but they're very much a mobile first thing. I just uh, checked the web page here. It's a, you know, it's a mobile app SDK. And I think that's great. I think for certain use cases, if you want to, find your rental car when you're exiting the airport or, or, you know, the, the nearest airport lounge or, or whatever it is. I think, I think that's great. But I think, you know, what I'm thinking is more that massive scale that, you know, like, like Google docs itself, right. When, when Google docs itself is using things like flutter or, or when people move, you know, whole application technologies over, you know, that means it's, it's significant. So it's the right tool for the right job. I think we need stuff like Flutter. I think we need stuff like the web apps and web frameworks. And I also think we need native applications. Mm, fascinating. Okay. Well, Brett, we keep talking for a long time, but really good to have a discussion. Any kind of closing thoughts to wrap together all the uh, disparate subjects we covered? You know, Jeff, thank you so much for having me. It's great. I love, obviously, spent my life in technology and love it, super passionate about it. What I always like to tell people if I have any advice for them, and that is, you know, follow your bliss. You know, there's just a real joy in making stuff, whether, you know, some people are into food, some people work with wood, uh, some people make all kinds of arts and crafts. And of course, in my industry, we make a lot of games, but, you know, there's just a real joy from, from making stuff. And when you make space, for that insight and creativity 
that's reflected in, in your end products. And that's understood by human beings universally. You know, when we hear an amazing song or, you know, we see or read something amazing, it's just, it's universally known um, that it's amazing. So, you know, bring that to your craft and building whatever you build. And if it's games, certainly do that. And uh, you won't get lost along the way. I couldn't agree more with that. I think it's it can be an immense therapy to create something and to be able to it just to to riff a, a little bit on that. I th- it can be slightly narcissistic in some ways to to have artifacts of your creativity and to revisit those artifacts over time. But I find it you know personally whether it's making podcasts or art or music whatever making stuff and then being able to look back on the, on those things and say, yeah, I made that. And, and also I've had progress over time and the things that I create, it brings me, like you said, that the term bliss, it brings me such satisfaction that I just, it I just makes me want to do more of it. And it seems like a, a one very healthy addiction or feedback loop to have in my life. Couldn't agree with you more. Okay, Brett. Well, really good to talk and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Jeff. Wow.